thank you for for being here with us and shout out to to Bruce our common friend who made it basically it, you know as we've been discussing what I try to do with this this series of podcasts or episodes and guests is actually to give different perspectives of, about the industry and now we are focusing you know specifically on the impact of football or soccer in the US and vice versa from from the US outside and we've been having conversations with different American executives or people engaged with with the sport and wanted to give that perspective. I think that's uh, of great value for the network uh, that we built around this in terms of understanding the business, understanding different perspectives. And as you know, we, I mean, I'm Dominican and, you know, being Dominican baseball is, is kind of our first reference and the U.S. is a, is a reference market for us. But here in Europe, we've always said that, you know, the, the, from the business perspective, the U.S. has a more evolved offering and management and, and different styles. So we'll go over those details, but you know, we want to give that flavor and that perspective from the market outside, especially when speaking about football, which is as global uh, of a game as it could be. So we wanted to start with you to understand, you know, who you are, where you come from and your, you know, standing and in the industry and, you know, how everything came to be now that you are and on the other side of the business as, a, as an agent as well. Okay. That sounds, uh, that sounds good. So, I mean, at my, I've been employed now, I guess, in every, in every aspect of the game, even at grassroots level, at every level, with the exception of, of ownership right now. I, you know, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, very much, uh, as we call it, like a meat and potato area. It was American football, baseball, basketball. Those were the main sports, ice hockey. And no professional league with the exception of the major indoor soccer league at the time when I was growing up. In 19, for the 1990 World Cup, the U.S. qualified for the first time in, and I, I don't know how many years it was. And that was really when the, the evolution of the game restarted, so to speak, in, in the U.S. There had been, there'd been some semi-pro leagues that had started, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. But really, you know, if, if, if anyone was to play professional soccer, it was over. It was overseas or in Mexico or in South America. Most of the time, it was it was players that were born abroad that that obtained U.S. citizenship. Every now and again, a player from university would go would go to Europe, but it, it wasn't the it wasn't the norm. I think the the good and the bad of that was the good of it was every top player in the United States went and played in college. So the col college um, ended up being like right now, the under 23 Premier League in, in the UK, because every, and, and it was very, very competitive. It just wasn't, it just wasn't professional. So we were getting as American players, we were getting a late start on our development as players that you're in Barcelona, for instance, 
and you were really good at you know 15, 16, 17 years of age, you were already training with the first team from time to time. Yeah. You know, and, and and with and amongst fantastic players in the academy. You know, we didn't even have a we didn't even have the start of a of a, of a professional team until 19, I believe it was 1995, 96 or 96, 97, one of those, one of those two. I think it was maybe 96, 97. The birth of a DMLS. Yeah. yeah. So it where where soccer is now in the US and where it was back then, I mean it's completely night and day. We still have a lot of deficiencies over here without with without a doubt. And we don't have the tradition of the any of the leagues in Europe or South America or Mexico. But we're starting to form our own traditions over here as uh, as time as time goes by. And a lot of a lot of big businesses and a lot of very wealthy businessmen and women own own teams in MLS, own teams in USL. You know, USL is is starting to um, become stronger and stronger as the second division as the second division market. But most of us that got opportunities, as I would say, were Americans born and raised in the United States. From my era, anyways, we were. It it, it was. Uh, five percent chance that you would go to Europe and and get a contract my pathway it, it when I looking back on it it's mainly luck you know there was an assistant coach named Dean Wurzberger at UCLA who changed his flight he either changed his flight or missed his flight and I was playing at a small tournament in Virginia and he came back to the fields where I was playing because I was getting recruited for for other sports not not soccer and then he told the, the late Ziggy Schmidt, you got to see this goalkeeper. And that's how my career started. There was no scouting networks. There were no, um, you, know, you know, true scouting networks. You, you got on a plane and you flew around the country and you watched. And then from that point on, it was Ziggy calling Lothar Osianda, who was the Olympic team coach, and saying, you got to see this kid. And that's how my career started. There wasn't... You know, it wasn't like I was, I wasn't in any national team pools. I wasn't in anything and I of that nature. And it was just luck followed by a phone call. And then I went in and, and performed, but that's how my career started. And then 1992, I played in the Olympics in uh, Barcelona and um, Nottingham Forest signed me on the back of that. And after, after that, the rest is history. But I, I stayed in Europe from 1997 clear through until 2015 when I moved and I and I retired relatively early from the national team it was uh, take the long flights were taking its toll on my body so I officially retired in 2004 from the national team when I could have played a fair a fair few more, more years seeing how I played until I was 44 but when I came back I went into the the media side of things and also the head coach of the under 19 national team and the landscape of things in the U.S. was so different. You know, there was, was the stadiums, the training grounds, the scouting networks, technical advisory boards that were set up amongst the federation, the MLS, the salary caps in MLS were, were ever increasing, and and they're increasing by the by the day as we as we speak. Now, the sophistication of the league is getting better. Players in Europe, I think, still see it as a secondary league. 
a lot of players in Europe still would see it as a retire as a place to go when they're retired. But what I think what happens now is if you have that mentality as a European player and you come over, you don't perform well because it's it, it's too hard of a league to have that mentality that mentality now. So is it is it as good as La Liga or Premier League or Bundesliga or Liga at the at the moment? No, it's not. But it's still a very competitive league and it's getting better. It's getting better every year. You know, I've sat on quite a few executive boards now. And now I own a own and operate uh, the US office of promo esport. And so now which I never had in my career, I'm 50 years old now, on the inside of, of speaking on how certain executives do their actual business and their deals. And it's yet another eye-opener, you know, because... Absolutely. I, I have a... What is, what is a well-run club and what is not a well-run club? And, you know, it's pretty accurate. My thinking is pretty accurate when I sit in front of some executives and see how they do business. In the, you know, from a player's perspective, of course, you know, not a, not a fan's perspective, but from a player's perspective, and um, no, it's the educational process has been uh, has been immense. But the evolution of soccer from 1990 uh, till 2021, as we're talking, uh, has been truly magnificent here, and as um, you know, hopefully we get. We get this pandemic well and truly sorted out, and and if we do, the the World Cup will bring will bring so so many more resources to the U.S. Uh, and, and and it'll explode again. Yeah, and actually to to link that to a bit of a personal side, I mean the, you you are speaking very clear about the the two you know momentum speeds. Let's say in in terms of what was in the 90s and what it is right now. And uh, I want your take in terms of, you know, from the player's perspective, being able to suit up for your national team and, and be able to, to, to be at a great event, you know, the Olympics in 92, World Cup 94, and, and what it meant actually socially for the sport that you were representing. What, what was that feeling back then? And, and what do you think is the difference now in terms of, the momentum that in which this 2026 World Cup will arrive in. We were my generation of player, and you don't realize this at the time, but we were more the pioneers for a lot of. Now there were there were some players older than me. That really, you know, that really started things off in Europe. Tab Ramos, Roy Wegerly, Thomas Dooley. You know, players, players of this nature. But I would say, my, myself and Claudio Reyna, Brian McBride, Joe Max Moores, John O'Brien, Tony Santa, Frankie Haida, Casey Keller, Jurgen Sum, and and, and and I know I'm missing a whole host of players, so I apologize to any players <laughs> that I missed. But we we were we were the ones that had to sort of formulate the basis of the contract now the, the collective bargaining agreement for the the men's players right now we were the ones that had to go on strike threaten to go on strike at the time we were the ones that were you know really on on a bonus of you know even after the 94 world cup of around 250 dollars a game 
and we exploded it. We stuck our feet in and, and we, we got a real bit good basis for the, the contracts that the players are still operating under now today. Obviously, they've signed new collective bargaining agreements for more, uh, for more monies. On the flip side of that, I also now being a lot being a lot more experienced, so to speak, older experience to say what you want. When we did go and put that shirt on with the national team, the, the pride, the pride was immense. I mean, it's the best thing that you can do in your career. It truly is. But we also, as players, just automatically felt money grew on trees, you know, and now, now I know talking to a lot of people and knowing exactly what's there and what isn't there, there wasn't a lot of money to go around. You know, the U.S. Soccer Federation was stretched all the time. So what I was getting at, yeah, there was an enormous sense of pride. And but we were also fighting with this. We were underpaid all the time. You know, so there were a few trips that we would go into. And it's a shame looking back on it because that that overtook the fantastic emotion that uh, of playing for your national team. It, It took it away sometimes because. We, we would go in um, with all this animosity and all this pent up frustration. And, you know, not all the time. And it was, it was always fantastic to see your, your friends, especially when you were living in, in different countries all over the world and, and you could come in and, and meet them and play with them and, and all that. But, you know, you know, it was a shame. There were some, some instances along the way that it was so frustrating because we always felt that we were underpaid, but, you know, looking back on everything, it was far more, uh, far more of an emotional high than, than lows and, and, and such a wonderful thing to, to look back on a career and know that you've put on uh, the national team shirt, even just once is, uh, is, is amazing for an individual. No, absolutely. Actually, looking from the outside, as I said, and in Dominican, so we are, you know, by, by any standard, we are not a soccer country, even though it's, you know, developing and booming. But I remember my first football memory comes out of the, the, the 94 World Cup and basically out of the marketing and the promotion and everything around and kind of that, you know, the, that feeling of, of especially the American players becoming kind of pop culture icons at that time in you know it's kind of the americanization of soccer because usually what you saw is either either very old footage very grainy and now you see you know the i remember the design of the of the uniform there with the flag lala's kobe you know kind of kind of that that type of mentality which you are accustomed to see in other sports like you know the nba and basketball and how the how the, the players kind of, you know, gave you that vibe. And I always tell that, that my first, and that's probably why I'm, I'm kind of so obsessed with marketing and sports marketing, is that the promotion that got me hooked to the World Cup was actually a Pizza Hut promotion. And they were having Pele also as a, as a you know, figurehead of the campaign. And, and I, I, you know, it, for me, it was wonderful to see how you could do that. And I, I could, you know, now listening to you, I could relate to actually the the feeling that probably isn't is 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 actually because of not all the information was properly shared of players seeing okay we are putting this show 
this is what is happening, full stadiums, a lot of brands, you know, worth our money, you know, that, that type of thing without understanding that, you know, this is not on, on US soccer. This is actually an organization that is called FIFA and, and they have their, their kind of their deals, right? And and also like, so uh, Alexi, I work with at Fox, I played with him. He was my roommate, I think it was night four World Cup. Like, you know, at the time when he he and Kobe were getting marketed, had the dreadlocks and Alexi had the big goatee, <laughs> I tell you what, looking back on it, we needed it because yep. we didn't have, you're talking now, you know, at, I think a lot of us thought at the time, oh, you don't have to market individuals, you know, the, the game will grow and this, that, and the other, but we needed it. You know, Lexi became, Lexi and Kobe became two, two pivotal marketable players of our generation, no doubt. And I know Lexi had a small stint in out of in Italy, but his his career was uh, was mainly was mainly in the U.S. and um, and Kobe's was uh, other than a, a short stint in Coventry was all in the U.S. So they were they were huge for the sport. It you know they they each had a they each had a, a bit of a unique. They were both completely different players, but they were marketable. And we didn't have, we didn't have too many players that, that were eccentric enough to, to be marketed. You know, you, you saw Carlos Valderrama's hair from, yeah, you know, from a mile away. Yeah. Yeah. All away. And everyone knew, you know, it was Jorge Campos and his, and his uh, uniforms that he, that he wore, you know, he stood out, um, he yeah. stood out a mile, mile away, you know, players in Mexico were, were marketed because the the culture allowed it you know it didn't you didn't players in mexico didn't necessarily have to have an eccentric look if they played well because the the game was so far advanced in the u.s the game wasn't far advanced at all so a player had to have a little a little something extra to be marketable um yeah. had to have a a certain look so you know kobe and alexi did did an enormous amount for the for the sport in the u.s on on notoriety and and being noticed on a on a global on a global on a global stage. And I know Lex before we played England in '94 at Wembley. Alexi went did an interview in in England and basically told I don't know if, I I can't remember the quote exactly, but he he either t said he was going to teach Alan Shearer how to play soccer or. They were over there to teach England how to play. I, I can't remember it, but we lost 2 0, and Alan Shearer scored two goals directly against Alexi. And he, and he told him exactly how he felt about it. But, but things like that helped us. Yep. And actually, because, a, it, it, it is a great story because sport in general, you know, this you've been a player, you've been an executive, now you're an agent you know, revolves around the storylines. I mean, you, you need to make the, the sport marketable. I mean, winning and dominating a sport is one thing, but then you need to fill a lot of, you know, a lot of gaps within. And actually, you know, this is something that probably you, you sense even, you, you were part of the Olympic team that went to Barcelona. You know, there's a before and after for global basketball from that day, day, year and, and actually having the, the, the dream team there. Normally, Michael, I mean, 
that team actually transform basketball. But actually, you need to actually have a decisive, you, you need to have the product and then decisive strategy and actually create those uh, heroes, right? And that's, you know, after that point is when actually basketball became global. So in actually, and I wanted to, that's, this is one of the things that I wanted to discuss with you. You from, a, a, let's say, a, a player agent, player, player manager side of things, what do you see, especially in world soccer, that that hero creation will come from? Right? For example, Alexi and, and, and Kobe were, you know, homegrown heroes. They were eccentric somehow and, and, and people could, you know, engage with them beyond the game, but they were homegrown athletes, right? Now you have, you know, American stars, young American stars, basically killing it in Europe and being in the biggest football clubs here, mm -hmm. becoming stars of, of, on their own, right? And, you know, do you see that being the future of, of U.S. soccer in terms of, you know, exporting such amount of great talent that they become heroes over there? And it's just about the pride of that they are, you know, dominating outside of the, the country. Yeah, it's 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 finally evolved to a point where it, it, it you don't necessarily have to have a look to be marketable. If you're good, you'll get marketed now if you're the top. But we've also evolved to that point where you're only really going to get marketed if you are the top. Yeah. You know, we went through this. We went through this stage where pretty much every player on the national team and maybe even like going into, you know, player number 30 had a boot deal. Well, now things have changed a little bit where there's, you know, players will get equipment deals, but the real cash only comes to the, the, the top, top, the top five players. Yeah. yeah. So the great thing about it is, you know, Christian Pulisic gets marketed because he's a great player. Weston McKinney gets marketed because he's a great Tyler Adams is a, is a great player. He, he truly is. But he, he's got to do a couple more, a couple more years before he's going to get mark, marketed massively. Yeah. If you know what I mean, and his position on the field doesn't lend as much to the marketability. Even though Tyler Adams is, is, is a great, great guy, a great player. I mean, he kills it in, in Europe, but not as many people. You know, Tyler Adams' name won't roll off the tongue of as many people in the U.S. as Christian Pulisic does. Yeah. Um, he, he was at Dortmund. He had a 60 million, either pound or euro, I don't know what it was, price tag on him. And he's now at Chelsea, and they just won the Champions League. And it's starting, you know, he, he's, he's going to have the marketability because he's good. And that, and in the U.S., it's still a little different. In the U.S. markets, it's sometimes more of the look and other anecdotes. Obviously, the money on the marketing side of things is not as big for the men's player. The women's players, it's different, and that's that's for sure. But the you know, but it is it is growing more and more. The 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 truly great thing from my perspective is you're getting marketed now because you're good which means that the fans are starting to, in the U.S., are, are starting to really understand the game. And it's not just fans that have culture and tradition from outside of the United States that are following the sport. Because you need more, you need more numbers and you need more masses yeah. of people to really, truly 
become a marketing sensation. Yeah, you need to be you need to be mainstream because actually if it's on the niche of the sport, you know, the practitioners, the the kids that play the sport, you know, that's kind of an easy grab. And actually, you know, I, I speak with a lot of agents and advisors of players telling that what brands are looking actually is incremental revenue each each year, right? So if you are very popular on the kids that play the sport, you know, that's one thing. If you are a big brand, you are already dominating that space anyhow. So what else you can right. bring to that? And actually, yeah. that's, that's the, the key there. Right. And you need to be in the thoughts and the minds, yes, of the children to say to their moms and dads that I want to buy this shirt, for instance, or this bowl of cereal, or this type of cereal or whatever it is. But then you also have to appeal to the mom and dad so they pay for it. Yeah. Because <laughs> exactly. the kid, if, if the six-year-old wants it or the eight-year-old wants it, doesn't mean they're necessarily going to get it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Actually, that's uh, there's a lot of anecdotes back in the 90s with, you know, in basketball, especially with Dennis Rodman and everything. He was very popular. Not necessarily the type of uh, role model that parents wanted to invest their money in, right? You know what I mean? So, right. you know, that's uh, that's a good distinction. Actually, and, and you know, taking it back to, to your experience, both on the, on the you know, on, on, as a player and, and in the relationship in terms of the management, and you were alluding to, to you know, that now you understand what is a good management versus some a, a management that is not uh, as good in terms of uh, managing a club. With your experience in in Europe, you played in 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 different European markets, and and even from within here in Europe, we we see the differences in terms of the the more elevated or evolved way of management. So you know, comparing England to Spain or to Italy or to Turkey. You, you've been around when you look at that perspective and now that you sit with the executives on behalf of your clients what do you reckon in terms of differences between the european markets and from the european style as a whole compared to the us and north american market in terms of management and and, and that style that we that we recognize when you, and you're talking playing or marketing and, and Ma mar marketing and management. Turkey's a an interesting one because there's, you know, the fan bases are are enormous, especially if you're at Galatasaray, Fenerbahce, Besiktas, and whatnot. Salaries are are very very good and competitive. The masses in Turkey are not wealthy. You know, so the when you get into the the management side of things, you know the the way that income is generated over there for the clubs is by the clubs qualifying for European football and the television contracts paying for it. Their other, their second largest source of income is not ticket sales. It's not concessions. It's not match day revenues. It's selling players. Yeah. So, you know, so the, uh, in, in Turkey, the marketing, uh, it is, it just happens without paying the players because like, so here at Galatasaray, they have, they employ, the club doesn't, but the paid newspapers, each, each newspaper is sectioned off and they employ two, three, four cameramen every day. And they follow the players everywhere around Istanbul. I, I mean, they pop up everywhere and there's pictures ev everywhere of all, you know, so you get marketed by, by way of media. You, you're on TV all the time. 
but it's not as, you know, it's not as if Pepsi or Coca-Cola are going to come up and sign a player. They'll, they'll give uh, Turkish national team players, <coughs> excuse me, Turkish national team players contracts before a Euros or before a World but it's a little bit different over there. When you get into, when you get into England and you're in the Premier League at one of the top clubs, the man, the management train that is over there, the marketing train, the, the, the tentacles that they reach to are enormous. I mean, it is, it is an absolute monster of a business machine unbelievable product on the field, unbelievable fan base, unbelievable reach inside the country, unbelievable reach globally. You know, whether you, whether you think the league is the best in terms of the best quality football or not, that's to each his own. But the business mechanism that the Premier League is and the income and interest it generates around the world is second. Bundesliga has run uh, incredibly well. La Liga has, you know, fantastic talent. I mean, the players and the standard of football is is immense. But on a business side of things and a marketing side of things, you know, Real Madrid and uh, Barcelona take over almost the entire the, the entire not even country or league, the globalization of La Liga. I mean, it, Atletico Madrid is an incredible team. But you still, it's Real Madrid, Barcelona, when it comes to the marketing and management and things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, you know, each country has their own little idiosyncrasies on guaranteed revenues and, and bonus-related revenues. When you get into your Hollands and your Belgiums and your, your Germanys, you know, a lot less of the money is, is guaranteed until you're at the real big clubs you can make incredible money no doubt but it's mainly based on on appearing and winning to get that to get that huge money premier league it's mainly all guaranteed income and then when you sign the premier league contract the mark the marketing and management if you as a player if you don't have an individualized contract off the field as far as an endorsement you're still marketed in the premier league almost almost every day globally because of the the media the media arms that they have globally they the truly exposure is, is huge yeah. it, it's it's enormous so if you're a company looking to endorse a player you know M NBC SN over here has uh, the Premier League and, and they do a wonderful job with it and you were a company and you wanted to endorse Christian Pulisic you know you, you would see Christian Pulisic every every week yeah, you know, provided he's not injured, all throughout, anyone in the United States who wanted to wanted to watch him, and the Premier League productions throws throws games all over the globe. Yeah, you know, it's no, uh, it's, it's it's interesting because now, when, and I have the experience in in basketball when you talk about the globalization and actually from a player's perspective in terms of going abroad, usually what you you see. You know, there are evidently the in basketball, the goal is always reaching the NBA. Then there are different pathways. So you can go overseas a few years, you go back or whatever. There's the EuroLeague, which is that that next to the NBA is, is the biggest competition. But what you see a lot now in terms of younger talent that wants to bypass the NCAA system 
is actually going to places in which culturally it's easier for them to adapt and actually you know go by that year that they need to in order to be eligible for a draft right so going to australia or going to certain leagues in which the country is very fluent you know language is a is a it's a basic right in terms of that you can communicate in english that you can bring your family over from a player's perspective when you look on the other way around and we were speaking about that notion that it's going you know it's less and less but still is that you know the mls as a destination for a top soccer player it's you know if you want to start winding down your career and if and, and you mentioned that if you come into that mentality you know you you have a higher number to be unsuccessful because it's quite competitive but in terms of adapting to life and the facilities that teams put around people's families and, and feeling them welcome. What, what do you reckon in terms of the difference of, of you guys going over to Europe compared to, you know, playing in the U.S.? I can only, I can only speak for myself. Moving country, and, I have, and when I say that, I have my opinions on it. The, if you go to Spain as an American and, and go over to Spain, easy. You know, you have to learn a language, but I mean, what a wonderful thing to have to do is learn another yeah. language. The the housing, the, the infrastructure, the, the stadiums, the, the training grounds, the, the all the employees they have to help the player. Uh, you go to Portugal, the same. Belgium, Holland, Germany, England. A little bit more difficult in Turkey. But I, I got to tell you, the 18 months I did in Turkey was probably the, the biggest learning as an individual that I've ever done in my life. Met some wonderful people. You know, we all grow up in our little little cocoons. And what you what you learn is every single person's, every country's news stations are propaganda for their own country. I'm not saying it doesn't have to be negative propaganda. I'm not saying, yeah, but yeah. It, it's how the country views things. So I live in, you I go and I live in Turkey and I mean, what a, what a wonderful place to live, you know, but if you, if you live in certain areas of the world, you only hear about negativity coming out of Turkey. Yeah. And that is definitely not how I viewed Turkey and, and how the experience was for, for myself. You know, so you have to, I, I think all the clubs around the world now and the United States, by the way, have the infrastructure to look after any player. The stadium, the training ground, the staff to help, to help with moves, to help with families, to help with kids, to help with schools. They all have it. Um, so I think moving country to country is is quite easy and actually quite exciting. I think if, if you have the opportunity to expand your mind, learn different languages, meet different people, understand different cultures, it'll help. It'll help you in the long run as an individual. Yeah, having having that open mindset as a world citizen actually, you know, allows you to to live a very good life when you are abroad. And actually, that's something that I've been speaking with friends that are in 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 the soccer player business, right? You know, if it wasn't for the salary caps and exceptions, which I totally get, and actually I think in great part that's part of the recipe for success of the MLS in terms of steady growing and actually. You know, not leaving mm -hmm. anyone behind. I think that now 
players in Europe are starting to see a lot of what, what we could call, you know, kind of the location star power. So before, when you look at the MLS, you were, you know, it was Columbus, it was, uh, you know, certain, let's say, not, not, not to get anyone mad, I mean, especially family that I have living in certain cities, but actually it was, you know, about not metropolis cities, no, not LA, not Chicago, not New York, not Miami, especially now, especially for certain players, you know, the weather is important. And, and I think that now you start to, to, to see that, you know, the league is competitive. It's the biggest, you know, market in the world in terms of media and uh, marketing and, and, and advertising in general. So it is a smart move business-wise if you are top player in Europe. And then you have, you know, good locations, especially for the South American or Hispanic players, you know, going to a place like Miami that you actually can live without the necessity of actually being, you know, English speaking. I live in Miami now, and you know, I, I, I my let's put it so my Spanish is getting much better. <laughs> that's for sure. That's for sure. It's it's probably one of the biggest cities in Latin America. That's that's what I heard. <laughs> you go. No, definitely, and actually, that's 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 important. And I, I I I wanted to link to kind of the the last couple of questions that I have for you out of that because what we see, you know, governance and sports politics aside, now is some more, some sort of transformation of the business and looking at it from a transnational perspective. So, I mean, you saw all the craziness that, you know, this European Super League caused uh, a couple of months mm -hmm. ago. But in, on, on, in turn, you see that there are conversations, not that it's going to be easy or even possible, but conversations about what if we kind of bundle a North American kind of league. And, and, and kind of have the best of Mexico, the best of the US and the best of Canada, right? Especially now looking at 26, right? Why the European Super League, it's, it's, it, and this is a personal opinion, of course, but why the European Super League is preposterous and potential North American Super League could be feasible? I think, the, I think when American owners, and I've consulted for a few, when they go over to purchase clubs, they don't understand the true religion that soccer is in Europe. They really don't. And they can hear about it, talk about it, be told about it, but there are certain things in life that you won't understand until, you know, you- Immerse you, uh, yourself in it, yeah. Act, there's a reaction, you know, you make an action and there's a reaction, yeah. right? One of them, and they miss, they miss the boat a lot on it. A lot, not all American owners, but a lot of them do. And to, to cr basically say to the Premier League, well, we're better than, we're better than you. We're bigger than you. We're leaving. Okay. That's a, that was a business decision, but not one, not one fan wanted it to happen. The rest of the, most of, what would have happened, the likelihood, if they would have done it, the Premier League would have just kicked them out forever. And then, you know, the Aston Villas of this world would be getting the larger chunks of the Premier League money and they would become the new Chelsea because they would have, they would have the money. Yep. You know, and the, and the Super League would, would be these, these teams that didn't have relegation and promotion so they could maintain money. You know, but they would, I think it would have disintegrated football across 
across Europe. Now, I think there are some deficiencies with the um, with UEFA and 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 whatnot, but I just think whenever you make a, a decision just solely based on finances in global soccer, you're going to get backlash yeah. because too yeah. many. There's a lot of passion involved, so to be just numbers, yeah. Too many fans, too many supporters, too many companies spend their last dollar for the sport. Too many. And when when you have that and then they see greed on the other side, because they won't see it as necessity. I've seen the quotes from some of the owners. We need this or we'll fold financially. But fans won't see the necessity. Yeah. They'll only see, they'll only see greed. <clears throat> so, no, definitely. I actually, I think what the, the biggest mistake was the way it was conveyed. It, it wasn't a good case they made for themselves. And I think that, that they were ill-advised in terms of, you know, the timing, how to frame it. When, but when you open up that, you know, we're bankrupt and we need more money, you know, it's not a, a good segue into actually trying it, to find a solution it, because it was poorly put out in the world i don't want to see it happen like that i like i'm more traditionalist um no. i don't mind rules i don't i don't mind excitement i don't mind some change but i i wouldn't want to see you know a certain country decimate if you took for instance if you had a super league and you took rangers and celtic out of scotland scottish football dies no If you take if you took Benfica, Sporting, and Porto out of Portugal, football dies. Yeah, yeah, it needs to be a, a better system. I mean, probably probably there's something to be done at that you know at the apex of the of yeah. that of that pyramid that that is more sustainable, that it generates more, and you can have a better spillover effect. But you need to have some you know clear avenues on how everyone can benefit from it, right? And you need to be able to communicate that better. That's for sure. That's for right. sure. No, and, and actually, you know, kind of in closing and, and, and through your perspective, we talk about a lot about, you know, the hero creation and how people kind of have those references. And you were talking about your own experience in terms of, you know, the lack of professional soccer when you were coming up. How do you stack from the, Europe, from the American perspective, you know, the MLS and NWSL, as drivers for notoriety and, and the adoption of the game and as an aspiration pathway compared to the influx of, you know, the, the, the overseas leagues? They both can help. The great, <clears throat> the great thing for the American player is they, they have somewhere professional to go play. <clears throat> Excuse me. They have somewhere professional, so they can do both. They could watch European football in the morning when they wake up and go to their training and they get both the best of both worlds. So they, the, you know, the young academy players at, at the clubs can go see the professional players at LA Galaxy, for instance, but they can wake up in the morning and watch Real Madrid play. You know, so they can have their stars both. And what's happening in MLS and NWSL, because they have the best national team, the women's national team players, they can they can actually see a lot of these stars over there so if you're in new england right now the best player in the league at this moment in time playing is carlos gill so if you're a young academy player 
coming, uh, you know, coming to training, you get to see Carlos, you know, come coming in, you know, it, it, and so you've, you've got your star there, but then you could watch, you can watch Liverpool or Barcelona or Man City in the morning and you can have that star as well. But there's actually people that are, that you can touch and see and talk to now in the league and the facilities are much better. So you could actually have your hero right in front of you, which has not always been the case in the U.S. Yeah. I don't know, so you can, I think you can have both. No, definitely. I, I, and I think that now when you have that crossover, as we were alluding, you know, Serginho uh, Des, here's some policies, and you see also, you know, guys that could be your your neighbors in the U.S., you know, going abroad and actually making it, that kind of is full, full circle to that Hebrew creation. So you have the both, the best of both worlds, and you know that, that that pathway is a reality, that you could continue to develop your game, and eventually you can go up and play, you know, at the top stage which is you know european football right so yeah. just just to to in closing in terms of the aspiration we we spoke about the impact the world cup had in 94 and then you know the subsequent creation of the professional tier in soccer in the u.s now that we are ahead of probably one of the biggest world cups that we'll see in 26 encompassing the the, the whole north america Do you expect that there's a shift of power in terms of, you know, commercial marketing interest, business interest, and actually the whole governance in terms of global football out of that World Cup? Is, is that something that is foreseeable? Yeah. Yeah. You know, coronavirus stopped the growth for a little, for a little bit. But, but yeah, I mean, 94 World Cup, It was immense for the sport, and having another World Cup here, it it's going to it's going to generate so much revenue, and I think people in the game are far more educated now. You know the ones that will have their hands on the money, and exactly where to where to spend it. You know, not I'm not saying that they that they did anything on purpose wrong. You know, wrong. And spent the money in 94 it's just people are more educated now on what the actual needs are so i think the masses and the money will will go uh, will be spent more wisely for the sport yeah absolutely i, I truly hope so because actually and being mean from the caribbean but you know as, as north america goes it actually helps evolve everyone and being part of the CONCACAF. I think it's is very good for the whole region, even though you know you you have the Central American powerhouses that you know every now and then uh, are at the global stage. But I think that it will be tremendous for the whole continent, even for the South American game as well, which I think is in need of a revulsive and actually be able to to continue to evolve. So, Brad, thank you, thank you very much for your time. I really really appreciate that you make this happen very early your time. And, and we definitely will want to have uh, further conversations with you. Very good. Thanks. And you have a, uh, have a great afternoon. This episode is brought to you, as always, by The Connect. The Connect is Raida Luis Baez. Follow The Intersection podcast in your favorite podcasting platform. Leave us a review and share it with a friend. This will really help us be found by more of you interested in the topics of sports marketing and deal making. Until the next one.